couple of uh, just preliminaries. First of all, this is my first outing since I returned from Fiji. I returned with pneumonia. So uh, I had no voice until Friday. So um, this is my gullum juice. Those of you who understand, understand. Those of you who don't, it's uh, lemon juice and honey and ginger to uh, kind of help keep things going. Now this Sunday, although it is Christ the King Sunday, I am not going to focus specifically on the passages of Scripture that we read. I am rather going to preach from a passage of Scripture that we in fact use every Sunday in our services. And I promised the confirmands when I taught the confirmation class that I would preach on the Lord's Prayer. And so, since I am the founder and teacher of the um, Teach Us to Pray International, I'm going to kind of open up a bit and unpackage the Lord's Prayer on this Christ the King Sunday. First of all, recall that the prayer that we talk about in Matthew is not the Lord's Prayer. It is the disciples' prayer because he says to us, when you pray, pray this way. His prayer is in John, the high priestly prayer, and it's a beautiful prayer. There are those who say that the prayer that we pray as the Lord's Prayer, Jesus never intended us to pray it. Uh, it was never intended to be used as a, as a prayer that we pray repetitively week in and week out. I say rubbish. That's not true. Because Jesus was a Jew, and Jews prayed specific prayers day in and day out. It united them together in their faith. And so when the disciples came to him and asked him to teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples, remember that at least three of these had been John's disciples. It was the practice of a preacher, teacher, rabbi to give his people a prayer that they could pray that would epitomize who he was to them. Now think about the context in which this prayer was given. Luke gives us the context. Jesus was almost toward the end of his ministry. Uh, he had sent out the 12. He had sent out the 72. And they had done incredible things. They had healed the sick. They'd raised the dead. They'd cast out demons. And by the way, this really impressed them, that they had power and authority over the demons. Then he comes and he, and he teaches the, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then he goes to Mary and Martha's house. And you know, remember Martha, Martha, you're concerned. This was his friend. This was his friend's house. And it says that that evening he went to a specific place to pray. I love that. Because it says to me that he had been to Mary and Martha and Lazarus' house often enough that he had a specific place where he would go to commune with his father. And they knew it. The disciples knew this. Now, they had often seen Jesus pray. 
Hebrews tells us that he prayed with loud tears and cries to God that he might be heard. The disciples had been watching him. They had gone out. They had done the things that Jesus was doing, but they understood that if they were to, to be able, Mary, to continue to do the things that Jesus was doing, they would have to be able to pray as Jesus prayed. And so they said, Lord, teach us. Tell us how to approach the Father with a degree of intimacy and depth that you do. How can we be as intimate with him as you are? And so he gives them this prayer. And he begins powerfully. Our. Our. What is in that word? Our. Our. You see, yeah. It indicates that in our struggle in life and in our struggle in faith, we are not alone. We are placed in a family. We are placed in a fellowship. We are placed in a group of people who can strengthen and help and build us up in faith. Jan, when you're suffering, you're not alone. Don, when you're suffering, you're not alone. You have a family around you. A group of people to embrace. And this group of people goes back through all of history. There is this great cloud of witnesses of which we are a part. I've often told you that I grew up in a denomination where we felt, we said we were not the only Christians, but we were Christians only. But in reality, we believed that we were pretty much the only Christians. Those Methodists, those Episcopalians, those Anglicans, those Catholics, they would never be saved. They baptized the wrong way. God bless me, my wife, my son, his wife, us four, no more, amen. Pretty much where we were. And we were ignorant and unaware of the fact. We said we had restored the body of Christ. You know, if Jesus and the apostles had come and sat down in our little congregation, they'd have been right at home because we got it just like they did in the first century. How arrogant, how presumptuous. But don't all denominations tend to do that? We are the, the, well, if not the best representation of the body of Christ, at least we're pretty much right up there at the top one or two. And, and, and we feel kind of sorry for those who don't have a liturgical style of worship because, you hear what I'm saying? I've traveled all over the world. I have worshiped with groups of people whose names as a denomination or a church we will never hear. But I want to tell you that we're my brothers and sisters in Christ. And I am the better for having worshipped with them. We, we have a goal to, to, to build and establish Anglican churches. We, we want to we build more. Praise God for that. But I want to see the church built. I don't care whether it's Baptist or, or, or Lutheran or Methodist. I want to see his kingdom built. I want to see Christ as king exalted in all places. And I know that there is no one denomination that can do it all. 
And therefore, my hour is much bigger than this body. As much as I love this body, as much as I want to see this body thrive and grow and plant churches all over the place. But I want to tell you there's room in the kingdom of God for more than just us. And we need to be a part of a praying, preaching, teaching fellowship that goes beyond the name Anglican. We are Christians first. We are Anglicans second. Yes, we're Anglicans. I love the Anglican church. I love our traditions. I love the fact that much of what we do goes back to the first century, and it really does, our prayers. But God be praised that there's more to the body of Christ than just us. How big is your hour? My hour encompasses all of those who can say the creed without reservation. If they can say that God is the Father, that Jesus is the Lord, and, and you know the creed, if they can say that without reservation, they are my brother, they are my sister, I don't care what their denominational title, and I will worship with them, and I will enjoy the fact that we will be with them in heaven. I, I love the, the little joke that kind of goes like this. This bishop dies, and he goes to heaven, and Jesus is showing him around. And there's rejoicing and noise and singing and all good things. And they come to this little corridor. And Jesus says to the bishop, shh. And they creep through the little corridor. And they come out the other side. And the bishop says, what was that all about? And he says, well, there's a group of Baptists behind that door over there. And they still think they're the only ones here. <laughs> Our. How big is your hour? How much do you recognize the body of Christ, the one over whom he is king and Lord? And it goes far beyond us. It encompasses all of those who believe the basic truth. It, it doesn't include Muslims. It doesn't include Hindus. It doesn't include Sikhs. It doesn't include Mormons. There are those who are outside of the kingdom of heaven, but there are many who are within, and we need to recognize that they and we are part of one united family. Our, our Father. Father, what a term. You know that that was the last thing the disciples expected to hear out of his mouth? Because you see, to the Jews, God was El. God was Yah. God was Most High. God was to be feared. God was not even to be named. You would never think of God as what Jesus said, Abba, Abba, Daddy, Daddy. Ron's got uh, two kids now. And I know that when little James crawls up on his lap, as he gets able to say, Daddy, that means something to you, doesn't it? And all of you who are fathers, understand what it means to have your son or your daughter crawl up on your lap and say, Daddy, Daddy, I love you. You see, Jesus is saying that this great and awesome and mighty and powerful God, God who, is, who dwells in unapproachable light, can be approached. 
that he is revealed in the person and the nature and the character of his son, Jesus Christ, who cried out to him, Abba, Father, Abba, Daddy. And he invites you, Alan, he invites you to crawl up on his lap and to curl up against him, especially in the hardships and difficulties of life and to relax, and to know, Tim, that he loves you, and that he embraces you, and he calls you by name, that you are his son, you are his daughter. And if you understand anything, you understand that God, when he speaks of himself as father, speaks of himself as parent, mother and father, although he is revealed very much as the masculine, he embraces and he, en and he enfolds all of the aspects of parenthood. And Jesus says, when you come and you pray, you are praying to your daddy. You are praying to the one who begot you. You are praying to the one who knows your name. You're praying to the one who calls upon you to come into his presence with rejoicing and thanksgiving and joy. Father, now, I know that for some, father is not a good term. Father, to me, was not a good term. You, you know the history. I've given it to you. My dad was an alcoholic. I hated him until I was in my mid-20s. I was ordained, and I still hated him. And as a result of that hatred, I did not really love God, the Father, because I did not know what a father was. I loved Jesus. But I feared God because my experience with the Father was the back of a hand, the nasty word, the abuse. And I am so sorry for so many of you who have shared, unfortunately, that very same experience. You never knew a Father that you could speak to with love or who spoke to you with respect and love. But I want to tell you, your father, God, is not like your earthly father. Your father, God, will never fail you. Your father, God, will always embrace you. Your father, God, will always reach out to you. He always has your heart interest as his heart interest. He is the epitome of fatherhood. He is the epitome of parenthood. He is that which every father on earth ought to strive to emulate and be like so that their children may know the nature and character of the true God. I came to forgive my dad. I came to love God and I came to love him because... I came to understand that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. And that when you see Jesus, you see the Father. You see, I had always seen the Father through the eyes of my own Father. And I began to see the Father through the eyes of Jesus. And I want to tell you that makes all the difference in the world. Because no matter what or who your father was, the heavenly father, the heavenly father is shown 
in the heart and the character of the one who said, let the little children come to me. Don't forbid them. Who said to the woman at his feet, I forgive you. Go and sin no more. Who as king of kings and lord of lords emptied himself on a cross that you and I might be saved. And as he emptied himself on that cross, he showed us the heart of the Father. Our Father, who art in heaven. You see, again, earthly people will fail you. I don't, I don't care what priest you have or how many priests you have over the years that this church exists. You will never have and never have had a perfect priest. We try to represent God. We try to show you his nature and character and love, but we have feet of clay. We have this treasure in jars of clay. But our Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father is without fail. He always exists to meet every need. There will never be a time when God is not present to your needs. He is your heavenly Father. And I want to tell you this also, that before the throne of God, there is no conflict. There is no struggle. Before the throne of God, God's will is always and everywhere perfectly and completely accomplished and done without fail as it has always been and as it will always be. And therefore, you can rely upon your Heavenly Father to meet you and be with you always and forever. The nature of his character, that heavenly character, so beyond what we can understand, so beyond that which we can comprehend. And that is why it says, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. He's our daddy. He's our Abba. We can come. We can sit on his lap. But he is also the awesome, mighty God. Our God is an awesome God. He reigns in power and love with wisdom. He is eternal. And he is so other that we cannot comprehend him. Although he is fully revealed in the person of Jesus, there is this dichotomy. We see, we understand, we apprehend, and yet there is so much more, is there not? And so he is due all reverence, all awe, all, all. I don't know, how, how many of you watch The Crown? How, 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 yeah, right. The Queen. She has authority, right? Her kids can cut. Now, it's a very dysfunctional family, by the way. But, but, but her kids can come to her at any time. They can go into her bedroom. They can watch her watch. They can eat popcorn with her. They can hang out with her. They can swim with her. They can pet her dogs. But when there is a royal function, when she is wearing that crown, and they come into her presence, how do they come? They bow down to her authority as monarch. God is the king of kings, 
and Lord of Lords. He rules this universe, and he is worthy of all of our respect, all of our reverence, all of our awe, all of our honor, because of who he is and where he is. Yes, he is our daddy, but he is also our Lord. Jesus, friend of sinners, is King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will return on a white horse. And every knee will bow, and every tongue confess, because he is King of kings, because he is Lord of lords, and because he is worthy of all hallowed respect. His name, his nature, his character, who he is, is awesome. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we kind of phrase that as a, you know, Lord, let, let your kingdom come. Uh, you know, let your will be done. Kind of like it's, a, it's almost like a question. The only thing is that in the original it is a declaration. It is a demand. It is a command. We are children of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And we have the authority on earth to command things here. We have the authority on earth to whenever you see something that is not right. Whenever you see something in your life, in your family, in your church, in your community, in your nation that does not align with the will of God. You have the right and the authority to demand in Jesus' name that that situation align itself with the kingdom of God. Can I say that again? We have the authority to command things on this earth. We are not asking that the kingdom of God come. We are declaring that the kingdom of God will come in the circumstances where he puts us. This church is in this community to demand and to, and to enforce the coming of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is where God's will and rule is 100% carried out. And we as his church are here to say, in Yukaipa, kingdom of God, come. In that school, kingdom of God, come. Among those children, kingdom of God, come. In the broken relationships of our children's lives, in the broken relationships of marriage, in the broken relationships of substance abuse, kingdom of God, come. Will of God be done. We have authority to command and to say and to state, and God will honor what we say. This is not some mild-mannered, oh, God, if it be your will, let your kingdom come. It is his will that his kingdom come, and we're the enforcers of that kingdom, and he gives us here the authority to command the coming of the kingdom in the brokenness of our lives and circumstances. Do not settle for anything less. Do not give up. Do not give in to despair. 
kingdom of God come, will of God be done, because I am a child of the king, I am his ambassador, I have the authority, and I declare in this situation that what is not right will not remain, that what is right will be established. Don't pray namby-pamby prayers. Come boldly before the throne of grace with confidence that as his son, as his daughter, he has authorized you. You are an authorized person to declare to the forces of hell and the forces of heaven that right here, right now, God's kingdom will come and God's kingdom will be established and his will will be worked out in this situation and no other. kingdom come. Will of God be done on earth as it is in heaven. Listen, what in heaven is imperfect? What in heaven does not yield itself to the word of God and the express authority of God? And so he tells us on this earth in this time we are to declare that as it is there so it shall be here and so it shall be now. And that brings us to the next phrase here. Give us this day our jelly bread. I'm, no, I'm sorry, our, our daily bread. The only problem is that's not what it says. Do you know what it literally says? Give us tomorrow's bread today. Give us tomorrow's bread today. And the translators look at that and they scratch their head and they go, what on earth can that mean? Well, it must mean something about daily bread, so we'll just, you know, we'll translate it that way. Give us, you know, what we need to eat today. Give us our nummies. Well, I suggest to you that it means a lot more than that. And I'll give you at least two meanings. The first one is this. Where is, where are our tears wiped away? Where, where are our tears wiped away? Where? In heaven. Where will we receive everything that God has promised to us? Where? In heaven. Now, listen to this. God is saying to us, Jesus is saying to us, we have the right today to tap into the resources of heaven now and to bring from heaven that which is waiting for us there into our present life and circumstance. What does that mean? I am ill. My wife is ill. I have a need for health. I have a need for healing. Lord God, would you take from the health that perfect body that is stored up for me in heaven and would you bring that back into today, into my life now, because I need that health and strength now. Oh, there's incredible financial resource stored up for us in heaven. We'll have no need. God, I need to pay my bills today. Would you take from the resources of heaven and would you bring it into my life?
today and my circumstances today. Because I need it today, I need it now. And he is saying, I want you to call forth from the resources of heaven that which is yours tomorrow and bring it into the present. Illustration of this. Let me say that my father, instead of being an alcoholic, had been a multi-billionaire. Had been fabulously wealthy beyond all men. And he only had one son, little Kenny Bob. And I'm about uh, 14, 15 years old. And my daddy's older and he knows he's going to die. Now he had a chief financial officer, Jerry Saladin, whom I've always thought of as my uncle, oh. Uncle Jerry. <laughs> and my daddy, knowing, being the wise man that he is, because he didn't get that wealthy by being a fool, said, you know what, Jerry? I'm going to die. And if I die and my son at 14, 15, 16 gets all this wealth, what do you think is going to happen? It's party time! Woo! Right? And so my wise father sets up Jerry Saladin as the executor of my estate. And he says, Jerry, when Ken is 30, 35, you determine it, then he can receive his inheritance. And so, little Kenny begins to grow and get a little older, get a little wiser. Jerry doles out a good allowance, but, you know, not enough to let me get into trouble. But finally, I get to be about 22, 23 years old, and I go and I say, Uncle Jerry, you know what? I've decided what I want to do with my life. I'd like to be a doctor. I'd like to go to UCLA. I'd like to learn to be, it's going to be, a 12-year ordeal, and, and Uncle Jerry, it's going to cost me about $250,000 a year, and I've got nothing. Would you take from my inheritance and pay that bill for me so that I can go to the university? What do you think Uncle Jerry would say? Absolutely. One semester at a time, but yes. That's what your father would have wanted for you. And so I take from my future inheritance and I use it in my present circumstances. And that is what this prayer is calling upon us to do. We have a future resource in heaven, but Jesus is saying, call upon that resource and begin to use it now. And God is inviting you to do that. He's asking you to ask for the blessings of tomorrow, the blessings of heaven today, now, in your present circumstance and need. Now, there's another meaning to this as well. Often, scriptures have more than one meaning. It is also referring to the Eucharistic bread that he gives us, the term that is used in, in the miraculous giving of bread gives us the understanding that he is saying to us, look, Jesus has died. He is going to heaven. But we need a tangible thing that we can touch and handle and take into ourselves on a regular basis. Lord God, give us always the bread of Eucharist, the miraculous bread, the presence of Jesus in our lives that we might partake of him on a regular basis and receive the fullness of the benefits of his death and burial and resurrection. At least those two meanings.
now. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is the only part of the prayer that has a contingency in it, isn't it? As we forgive others, so we will be forgiven. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that when we came to the cross and gave our lives to Christ, our sins were not forgiven? No. All of our sins have been forgiven, past, present, and future. We are a forgiven people. There is nothing that God holds against us. Nothing that God holds against you. I may hold it against you, but God doesn't. So what does it mean? If we don't forgive others, we will not be forgiven. Well, think about this. I don't know how many of you have ever been hurt by someone else. I mean badly hurt. I mean seriously hurt. Not just a little slight but a deep wound that hurt you deeply. My father did that to me. And until I was over 25, I did not forgive him. And do you know what? My life was diminished. I was crippled and hurt by that lack of forgiveness. Begin to hear what I'm saying? There are those who have offended you. They're those who've sinned against you. They've done something really wrong. And it requires forgiveness, not just, oh, that's okay. It requires genuine effort on your part to say, I forgive that person. I will not seek vengeance against that person because of this thing that that person did against me. I let it go. You know, when I'm counseling with people, one of the things that I find most often Mary, they can forgive other people, even, even really bad things. But how often, Linda, isn't it true? You've seen this. They cannot forgive themselves. I knew better. I knew better. I shouldn't have done that. I can't forgive myself. What you're saying there is that God needs to do something beyond the death of Jesus Christ for you, for forgiveness to be realized in your life. There's nothing beyond the forgiveness offered through the cross of Christ. But if you don't forgive yourself, if you bind yourself to that person who wronged you, if you bind yourself to that person, even if that person is dead or has totally forgotten what he did to you, you will always be carrying that person with you as a weight against life. And even God cannot release you from that if you will not release yourself. That's what he's talking about here. Let it go. Let it go. Let the blood of Christ be enough for you. And if you need counsel, if you need help in achieving that, seek out that counsel. Seek out that prayer. Because you will not find joy you will not find the fullness of life that he intends for you if you continue to carry upon your back the burden of someone else's sin or the burden of your own sin. He cannot take it off of you if you will not let him take it. And he asks you to give it to him because he says all has been forgiven. But Ken, you don't know what I did. I don't have to know. God knows. And he's already forgiven it in the person of Jesus Christ. Let it go. 
Let it go. Receive his mercy and his grace and his fullness in your life. Lay down the burden and walk in freedom. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God is not tempted. God does not tempt anyone. You are tempted when you're drawn by certain things that you long for that are contrary to the will of God. That's what scripture teaches. So how can it say here, don't lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil? Well, what it is saying is this. Look, I have certain tendencies. I have certain, I have certain capacities for sin. I love the ragamuffin gospel because the father said, I am a priest with a large capacity for beer. There's a problem with alcoholism. Father, you know what I'm like. You know that I have this treasure in vessels of clay. You know my innate weaknesses. You know my tendencies toward error. Lord, would you so supervise and direct my life that you will lead me around the landmines of my own tendency towards sin. Lord, lead me in the right path always. You see, I've told you often, God is righteous. What does that mean? God always does the right thing. God always goes the right direction. And therefore, God always achieves the end that he wants. And those ends are always just and good and delivering. So, Father, would you take me by the hand and would you walk with me through the landmines of my own personal weakness, of my own besetting sins? Would you give me the strength to resist when I would rather give in? Would you enable me to be an overcomer? Would you give me that strength which only the King of Kings and Lord of Lords can provide to his children and to his subjects. God's not going to tempt you. What is more, God will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can resist. But he will walk with you in the midst of those temptations. See, people say, God can't look on sin. I'm sorry, God's looked on sin for an awful long time. And God looks on you, and he knows your weakness. And yet, he loves you, and he wants you to lean into him as his father, as his daddy, as his king, as his lord, as his master, and to rely upon him in your times of deep, deepest weakness and deepest temptation. Why? Why? For thine is the kingdom. Thine is the power. Thine is the glory forever and ever.
he on this Christ the King Sunday. He is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. He is the one for whom everything was created and by whom everything holds its substance and existence. Kingdom of God. We are kingdom people. We are all about the kingdom of God. We are all about his will being done in us and through us in the circumstances around us. Listen, he loves you more than you could even begin to imagine. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He will always, always, no matter what the circumstances of life, be with you. I pray that you never pray this prayer again as just a rote thing. It can become that. I pray that you will plumb the depths of significance and meaning of this prayer, which Jesus, King of kings and Lord of lords, gave to you to pray in order to benefit you and draw you more fully into who he is. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.